Uh, we are beginning a new series today. We just wrapped up our series in James, uh, and we're beginning a new series today on the mission of the church. Uh, and what I want to do today is to start painting kind of a, a big picture uh, of what, what it look, what's going on inside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of a bird's eye picture of what the church is supposed to be all about. When you think about Barnes & Noble, um, you've got a mental picture of what goes on inside Barnes & Noble, right? Uh, there are people getting coffee, there are people shopping for knickknacks and moleskin journals, and there are people looking at books and then leaving and buying them from Amazon. That's, that's what goes on inside a Barnes & Noble. Uh, when, when you think about Walmart, um, there's probably a lot of things you think about. If you're in Bowling Springs, you think about people selling meth in the parking lot. Uh, well, actually. Um, but you, you think about people shopping uh, in Walmart. When you think about the YMCA, you think about people working out and that sort of thing. You know what the YMCA is supposed to be all about. What about the church? Uh, what's supposed to be happening here? Uh, if God is, is really at work in and through His church, what's He doing? What's His mission? And how does that affect what we are to be about uh, as a church? So, uh, today, 1 Peter chapter 2, this is God's Word, beginning at verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone." and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these uh, means you give us that we may know you and grow in our faith. And we thank you. Uh, for a time to worship together and now for a time to hear the pro proclamation of your word. Uh, God, would you use it? Would you use my words? Would you speak to our hearts? Uh, would you cause us to see what you are about uh, in the world and cause us to be want, want to be a part of that? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's, what is it that God uh, is doing in the world? This text tells us a couple of things. It gets at it from a couple different angles. One of the things the text tells us is that God is building a house, is the way it puts it. Um, imagine, what if Susan and I came to you and said, hey, we're getting ready to build a new house, 
But we're going to use uh, a different kind of building material to do this. You say, oh yeah, you're not going to use bricks? No, we're not going to use bricks. You're not going to use wood? No, we're not going to use wood. Concrete blocks? No, we're not going to use concrete blocks. What are you using then? Well, the kids raked a lot of leaves this fall, and, and we're going to use those. We have so many, we're going to use these leaves to make a house to live in. Now, you probably say, that doesn't sound like a very good building material. Uh, um, Justin may have a screw loose or something. What, what are they doing there? Well, if you look at this house that God is building, and you look at the building material he's using for it, you might not think he had chosen the best building material either. Uh, notice what he says, what Peter says in verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Uh, then down in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, who's this talking about? Who's the cornerstone of this house that God is building? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does a cornerstone do? And I've only had the privilege of working with a cornerstone once. Uh, not something we do very often. But when we were living in Boone, we had a retaining wall that had fallen apart, and we had to reconstruct that wall. And so we took all of this mishmash of stones of different sizes and shapes, and we assembled them all back into a retaining wall. But of all these stones, the most important stones were the ones that formed the foundational layer. And of those stones that formed the foundational layer, the most important stone, the one that was the key to the strength of the whole wall, was the cornerstone. And it went right up against the edge of the house and then supported the entire wall. And we wanted a stable rock, a good rock, a strong rock, a smooth rock, a solid rock to function as the cornerstone of that wall. We wanted the best stone we could get. Well, what Peter tells us here is that this cornerstone chosen by God, although Jesus is precious in the sight of God, he is actually rejected by men. That men pass over him. That they didn't want anything to do with him. In fact, they actually hung him on a cross and watched him die. But this man, rejected by men, was chosen by God to be the stone that holds together the house that he's building. To hold together the church. Now, think about that for a minute. The most important person in the house that God is building is a man who is executed like a common criminal. He's the most important man. The foundation of the church that God is building is a Savior rejected and hanging on a cross. Now, what that means, it means a lot of things, but one of those things that means is that if you are a follower of this rejected, crucified Savior, don't be surprised that crucifixion and death are a part of following him. If you're a follower of this rejected Savior, don't be surprised that rejection is a part of following him. But don't be surprised either when this rejection and dying leads to new resurrection life. Leads to new resurrection life in yourself and in the lives of the people around you. 
You know, I was thinking about this. I think when, I don't know what kind of churches you've been in, but oftentimes in churches we'll say, does anybody want to receive Jesus as their Savior? Well, then you need to, to pray this prayer and, and receive Him as your Savior. And, and I was just thinking about this, and I wonder if we ought to read Luke 9 to people instead, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Well, maybe we should read that, and then maybe we should say, does anyone want to come forward and start dying so that you can actually start living? The foundation of this house that God is building is a rejected and crucified Savior. So God's building this house. Jesus, this crucified Savior, is the cornerstone. Well, what's the rest of the house made of? Uh, the imagery Peter uses is that it's made out of other stones, living stones, which, which represent people. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built. What kind of people? All right? What kind of people does God use to build this house that he's constructing? Well, Peter doesn't tell us necessarily, but if you turn to 1 Corinthians, we read, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Now, let's do a little mental exercise. Uh, Think back to your high school class. Um, Some of you may have a hard time with that, but work work with me. Um, Try to remember who the least likely to succeed was. Who's the least likely to succeed? All right, Uh, think back to elementary school. Who was the boy with cooties? All right, you couldn't touch him, and then you get his germs, you cross your fingers. Maybe that was just us. Think about the circles you run in, work or school or, or just places you hang out. Who's the least likely to be chosen for anything? Okay, who's he's kind of the on the sidelines, as it were. Uh, God has chosen his son, who was rejected by men, to be the savior of the world. And just as God has chosen his son, who was rejected by men, he also chooses, in many ways, one of the least likely people to be a part of this house that he is building. He chooses people who are themselves rejected by men to be part of this glorious new house, to be part of this glorious new creation. God chooses weak people, dysfunctional people, messed up people, to shame those who think that they are strong and wise and glorious. And he takes these people and he unites them to his son and he makes them into a a glorious dwelling place for himself. Uh, Verse 5 again, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 elaborates on this in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God takes those who are rejected and he calls them to die and then he builds them into something uh, incredibly glorious. Uh, there's a documentary that's coming out shortly. It's called Landfill Harmonic. Uh, and it's the story of this village in Paraguay which is actually constructed on top of a landfill. All right, so it's, it's a slum on top of a landfill. And the people there make their living uh, by scavenging for trash and selling it, for tr- scavenging for things they can recycle and selling those things. That's how they make their living. That's how they survive. Well, they don't just survive. They also, in the midst of all of this rubble, they find uh, the necessary parts to make musical instruments. And not just, they don't just find an old drum and beat on it, okay? Uh, they make violins, cellos, uh, whatever you think of. They actually have a youth orchestra in this landfill community. And, and the music sounds really good. The instruments sound really good. You can Google it. It's called Landfill Harmonic. That's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in the world. He is is fishing through the the trash heap of this world. He's using us, people like us, to build this gorgeous temple uh, for himself, a beautiful temple in which to dwell. That we are the building temple of the building material of this temple which God is constructing. God is taking prostitutes. He is taking liars. He is taking thieves and adulterers, and he's constructing a dwelling place for himself out of us to dwell with by his Holy Spirit. Is he calling you to die when you come to him? Yes. Is he also making you into something amazingly more beautiful than you could ever imagine? A thousand times, yes. That's what God is doing in his church. He's forming us into this house. But verse 5 puts a different spin on it. He says he's also forming us into a priesthood. Now, think about that. God taking the have-nots, the winos, the porn addicts, the adulterers, the thieves, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, and he's making them into priests. He's making them into priests. Let me give you an illustration that helps get something of the magnitude of that across to you. And I'm going to tell you up front, there's something a little bit off with it, um, but I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, imagine you showed up for Sunday worship, and instead of the usual crew of folks leading worship, uh, instead of the usual suspect suspects, imagine instead you saw a convicted felon reading the announcements, and you knew that's who he was, and a drug dealer leading the call to worship and a thief leading in prayer, and a liar leading the singing, and a mute pastor who was all of these things trying to preach. All right, that would, that would freak you out if you came and you're like, I had that, yeah, I know that, and I know, mm, I know all of those things. But you know what, you don't really have to imagine that. Because that's what you see every week. 
You know, we, we think, oh, everybody up here has it all together. Uh, the professional Christians are just as messed up as anybody else. A lot of times more messed up. God just has to keep us where he can keep his eye on us uh, up in front of everybody. But he's, he's taken that kind of people and he's made them into priests to declare his praises. And they have reason to declare his praises. They have reason to talk about how great he is because they know what God has brought them out of. They know how merciful God has been to them. God makes rebels into priests. That's what he's doing in his church. He's building a house. He's making us into priests. Now, I told you there was something a little bit wrong with the illustration. The illustration works because we tend to have the wrong understanding of something. We tend to think that the professional Christians, in particular the pastors, kind of function as our priests. Hey, preacher, would you put a good word in for me with the man upstairs? I have a cousin once, and he was joking about this, I think. Um, but he was—he uh, lived in kind of a rural part of, of, of lower Alabama, and he farmed a little bit, and it had, they had had a really long dry spell. And they, he had been going to prayer meeting, and they had been praying for rain. Well, it started raining, and raining, and raining, and raining, and the peanuts were starting to rot in the field because it kept raining and raining. And um, <clears throat> he was at prayer meeting that night, and this, uh, this other guy was praying, and he said, Lord, we thank you for, for all the rain, but we've about had as much as we can handle now. Could you, could you please ease up a little bit? And he said that night they had the biggest thunderstorm they'd had in 20 years. And so he went back to his friend, and he grabbed him, and he said, the next time you're at prayer meeting, you just need to leave the praying to the preacher. All right, and you need to you need to just just stay out of that. He was kidding, but that's the way we think a lot of times. That the the preacher is kind of this priest, and we do love to pray for you. Please don't get the wrong idea. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. You are a priest. Jesus has died for you. He has offered himself as a sacrifice, pleasing to God for you. He's taken away your sin, so you don't need human priest anymore to intercede for you before God. You can go straight to the Father through the Son in prayer and confess your sins to Him and cry out to Him. We don't need to make any more animal sacrifices because the sacrifice that all of those pointed to anyway has been offered. So if we're priests then, And there are no more sacrifices to be made. What exactly are we to do? Verse 5 tells us we have the privilege and duty of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says we have the privilege and the duty of proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His wonderful light. What's God doing in the world? He's building a spiritual house out of messed up people with a crucified Savior as a cornerstone. What's God doing? He's made those very same people priests. And He's given them direct access to Him and giving them the privilege of telling the world how great and wonderful their God is. You're being made, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're being made into a spiritual house. You're being made into a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. But Peter also says, you're chosen, you're royal, You're holy. You are God's own possession. 
You are owned by God. It's what Peter is saying. You are, you are not a people. Now you're a people. You had not received mercy. And now you've received mercy. That's what your position is now as a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's really easy a lot of times for us to sit around and say, man, if only I had this. If only I had done this instead of that. Alright? If only this were different in my life. If only this were better. If I only had... But listen, what, what Peter is saying is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have it already. You have what your heart longs for because you have Jesus Christ. You have Him. You're owned by God. You're His treasured possession. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. You don't have to be somebody. You don't have to get whatever it is you think you have to have in order to be happy because you have Him. He has you. You're part of His family. He delights to show you mercy. He's brought you, he's brought you from death to life. That's the glorious thing that God is doing. Now, does coming to God and enjoy all these blessings involve a death of sorts? Yes, it involves a death of sorts. But look, let's say you had cancer. And they told you, look, the only way you're going to get better is if you go through chemo. And the side effects are going to be horrible. But with this particular cancer, there's a 100% cure rate. I'm going to fall through the floor in a minute. There's a, there's a 100% cure rate with this cancer. All right? If you'll just go through this. In fact, you will be a better person. You will be healthier than you were at any time in your life. Guaranteed. If you will simply undergo this treatment. Wouldn't that change the way that you thought about the chemotherapy? Jesus says, you do have to lose your life. But if you lose it, you absolutely will save it. Because you won't be building it on some rotting foundation of leaves. You'll be, you, you won't be building it on some rotting foundation of your own ability. You'll be building it on me. You'll be building it on the chief cornerstone that was rejected by men, but who is absolutely chosen and precious in the sight of God. The living cornerstone of Jesus Christ who absolutely will give you new resurrection life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how should you react to all of that? What should our reaction to that be? Joy? A lot of joy? It's unbelievable, right? How, how good this news is. The gospel is good news. We should be filled with joy. We should be filled with gratitude that God chose to save me? Really? Me? God chose to rescue me? It should fill us with humility. It wasn't that I had it all together and God said, oh, that's a sharp guy right there. I think I'll, I think I'll save him. God picked me off of the garbage heap, as it were, and he is making me into something beautiful of his free and unmerited favor and grace. And I think it should also make us merciful. Uh, Peter says here, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy shouldn't that make me merciful to other people 
shouldn't that make me want others, even others <clears throat> who despise and reject me, to want to know this wonderful mercy and goodness of God? Rosaria Butterfield, and I think I'm saying her name right, uh, says uh, that she was a she, she's a self-described or was a self-described leftist lesbian professor who despised Christians. That's how she described herself. This is what she wrote, and, and this is an article that's been I think it was in Christianity Today this week, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I I think it'll be worth it. Um, to us. This is what she wrote. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name Jesus commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. You ever use the Bible in that way with somebody? I'm going to have the final say. I'll quote the Bible to them. And she said that's the effect it has, just ending the conversation rather than to deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing, That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus Republican politics and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. And some of you may not know, we used to write these things called letters to each other on physical paper um, before there was email, even in 1997. Um, But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with a worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical, materialist worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. 
That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about, about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read The Way a Glutton Devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a, dinner part, at a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over me. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous, conspicuous by my butch hair, haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17, If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. 
and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my soul, of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first and passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother, I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life, and my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. You want to know what God is doing in the world? Let me suggest that you think about that story. Let me suggest that if, if you are one who has been rescued by God, that you, that we, we've been given the job, we have been given the privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His wonderful life. And we do that on Sunday mornings, yes, but we do that throughout the week as well in the way that we interact with the world around us. Let me encourage you to delight in what God has done in your life, in who He is, in what He is doing in your life now. Play it back in slow motion, savor it, give thanks for it, and then leave. Leave the comforts of your home. Leave the comforts of your community and declare His praises, not by attacking, but by loving the very people who reject you. It seems to me that the whole Bible is about somebody who did just that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are a suffering Savior rejected by men, yet chosen by God and precious in His sight. Uh, You have come and you have given up your life for us, that we might be a part of this house that God is building, that we might be priests even, that we might have access to the Father, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be made new creation. Father in heaven, How can we not declare your praises to a watching world? Would you stir us up to do that? Would you stir us up to love the very people who reject us? To hold out Christ, to hold out hope, to demonstrate love and mercy and good deeds. Father, help us to be involved in this mission that you are all about. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.